Good morning. Good morning, church. So wonderful to see you. Thank you for joining us this week. Well, today we're continuing our study in the book of Ruth, and we're going to uh, start today in this passage by talking about a very interesting marriage proposal. Marriage proposal. And marriage proposals are something that are just interesting to hear stories about. Some people have very simple marriage proposals. It's just they're, they're looking at the other person and they, they just ask, they just pop the question right there. Some have some more kind of exotic uh, marriage proposals. They plan a trip to a fancy place in a beautiful location, wind and waves, or they take a flight somewhere, or plan a whole evening or something. Some people do something in the middle of those. Some people perhaps get the candelabras that the church uses at Christmas and sets them up over here and then puts a red carpet with flower petals scattered there and then sings a song that they practice for months. That's what some people do. Uh, but yes, yes, yes. So, so that, that may be the way that I propose to my wife. But other people do somewhere in, in those extremes. But our passage today is probably one of the strangest marriage proposals I've ever heard or ever seen. But this scene that we're going to look at illustrates pure love and a kind that we often don't see around us in the world today. But it's a type of pure love that can be practiced by God's people. So again, we're in the book of Ruth. This is a book about love that is infiltrating, coming into a broken world and a broken situation. If you've been with us or if you haven't, the story so far has been a woman named Naomi traveled to the country of Moab while she was there with her husband and her two sons. Both husband and sons died, and she was left alone with her daughters-in-law. And she decided to go back home to her people in the land of Judah and Bethlehem, and only one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, went back with her, chose to be a part of Naomi's people and Naomi's family. When they got back there, Ruth decided to go into the fields outside the town to glean, to try to gather food, and she ended up in the field of a man named Boaz, who was actually a close relative of their family, and Boaz showed great compassion to her. And that brings us to where we are today. But before we look at our text, let's take a moment to pray. Lord, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that we will see the pure love that is illustrated here pure love of Ruth and Boaz and the pure love that you have to us through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that he may be the focus of our time together. May we not get wrapped up in ourselves, our own interests, or the personalities on the page, but see you clearly. To borrow words from John the Baptist, may he increase, may we see him and in all his glory, all his love that he has for you, Father, and for us. So I pray that our time this morning would lead us to live lives of pure love that reflect you and that bring you glory. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Today, when we read through, we're going to read it in chunks again, and we're going to start with the very beginning of the story, which opens with a risky proposal, a very risky proposal. We are in Ruth chapter 3. I'm going to read now verses 1 through 9. You can follow along if you have a Bible or a Bible app. The verses will also be here up on the screen. Ruth 3, we're going to start with verses 1 through 9 and learn about this risky proposal. In verse 1, Naomi, her, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. 
Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So this is this very risky, very strange proposal. If you notice when we looked at it, the chapter begins and it will end the same way with a conversation between Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And now Naomi is calling Ruth my daughter. She's taking her in as her family. Ruth has chosen to be with Naomi. Naomi is choosing her. Naomi says, should I not seek rest for you? Rest, security, a permanent home. And what she means by this is marriage to a loving husband. In the ancient world, that was really the only way for a woman to be provided for. I'm not saying that's right or the way it should be, but that's the way it was then. And so Naomi is looking for a husband for Ruth. This desire she has is echoing a prayer that she prayed. When she was speaking to both Ruth and her other daughter-in-law back in chapter 1, she said to them, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest. And she explains that, each of you in the house of her husband. So she prayed that as kind of a a shout out to God, God, take care of them. I'm never going to see them again. But now that Ruth's with her, maybe she's thinking about that prayer. And so perhaps out of gratitude, now Naomi is looking for a husband for her daughter, her really adopted daughter, like good moms typically do for their kids. And what follows then reads like a very convoluted scheme that a matchmaking mother has. Lots of details about try to get his attention and things like that. She wants to use this concept of a close relative, a redeemer, to get a son-in-law. And we have to ask, what is Naomi doing here? Is she trying to force God's hand? Is she tired of waiting for Boaz to make a move? Unfortunately, when we read the Bible, the authors often just tell us what happened. They tell us what is true. This is what happened. They often don't exactly tell us what's right and what's wrong, so we can really only guess what her motives were. But she explains to Ruth a a very opportune situation they have. Boaz is their relative, and he was the one that you went out with his young women to harvest, and tonight he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor. I'm not an expert in agriculture or farming at all, but from what I understand, they would gather together the wheat and the barley, they'd take it to a flat surface outside of town, typically on the east side of the city, and then they'd beat or throw in the air their grain or barley, and the wind in the evening would carry away the chaff, and what would fall to the ground is what they could use to make food. And this was an area outside of town. It's, the cities were up on a hill, so Naomi will tell Ruth to go down to the threshing floor. She has to leave the city, go down to this place outside of town. 
It seems that during this time of year, when they had all their grain and barley there, the men, particularly the men who owned the field, would sleep with it. Instead of going home, they'd sleep next to their crops so that someone wouldn't come and steal it. And so it seems that Boaz would sleep there alone with his harvest. She describes Boaz as our relative, our relative. And that phrase in Hebrew literally means one who is known or one known. And if you've been here the past couple weeks, there's been a key word in each chapter. In chapter one, the key word was return, return, come back, turn back. It was talking about how Naomi was leaving the land of Moab, turning to come back to the land of God's people. In chapter two, the key word was glean. Ruth was going out to glean to try to gather food for her and Naomi. The key word in this chapter is known, known. Someone is known, understood. We can learn, discover something about someone. So our relative is one known. Uh, The next verse says that she's not to make herself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Verse 4 says that when he lies down, observe or know the place where he lies. A bit later, Boaz will say that all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And then at the very last verse, Naomi says, wait, my daughter, until you learn or until you know how the matter plays out. So there's something we're learning. Something's happening here that's important that we're going to know or learn or discover. This is the plan that Naomi has. She tells her daughter-in-law Ruth to wash, to anoint or perfume herself, to put on a cloak, a dress. She may be talking about her best clothes or maybe just something warm. It's a cool evening. Maybe this is just a way to describe how Ruth can visually make clear that her mourning period is over. I know here in the U.S. and other kind of Western uh, cultures, not so much anymore, but a hundred years ago or more, if a woman's husband died, she would wear black for a year to represent a period of mourning for her lost husband. And so this is something similar. Naomi's telling Ruth, should change your clothes to make it known that you are not in your mourning period anymore. Perhaps, though, she's also trying to look good. She's about to have a conversation with a man that she wants to be her husband. The plan is she's to go to the threshing floor. She's to watch, see where Boaz lies down and wait for an opportunity to talk to him alone. We should sense, though, this is an extremely risky plan. It's time of darkness. This is an attractive young woman and a man. They're alone. You can almost cut the tension with a knife. What is going to happen here? What is going on? There's a lot of similarities here, too, to another story from the Old Testament. It's one we're not going to read, but in the book of Genesis, chapter 19, a man named Lot is alone. He's had a little bit to drink with his two daughters, and his daughters sleep with him, and their children are where the Moabite people come from. The reason Ruth is there is because that had happened. And so we're kind of in something that seems similar. This is a Moabite, someone who came from a very immoral relationship alone with a man. What is going to happen here? The issue is not that she's getting dressed up, but there's some timing that's concerning here. But what none of them know is this is an opportunity for God to bring immense joy into these people's lives. As the psalmist says in Psalm 4, 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Interesting, the two images that we see in this chapter as well. Once Boaz is asleep, Naomi tells Ruth to go to him and to uncover his feet. It could be his legs or maybe even his lower limbs. And that's a very confusing phrase. We may be, what's going on here? What is Naomi telling her to do? 
And some people reading that, they see something sexual happening here. But there's really no compelling evidence for us to believe that is what's going on. And it goes against the whole nature of the story that's been presented. Throughout the chapter, there's words about a redeemer, someone coming and saving, redeeming, restoring a relationship. Ruth and Boaz are presented as people of integrity. Boaz will call Ruth virtuous in verse 11. He'll say, all my townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. That would be a really strange thing to say to someone who's trying to tempt you sexually. But still, it is a risky situation. It's meant to be uncertain. It's meant to be tense. It's meant to look like something could go very wrong here with this story. Remember also, way back at the beginning, we were told this was in the days when the judges ruled Israel. And that time period was described as, in those days, every man did what was right in his own eyes. So this is the time period. This is what it looks like. It doesn't look like it's going to go well. But we're going to see that the characters are going to rise above their culture and rise above all the pressures around them. More likely, what Naomi was telling Ruth to do was by taking his his cloak or his cover off of his feet, it would be a way for him to wake up. When he felt the cool breeze on his feet, he would he would jump awake. That's probably what she was intending for her to do. And then Naomi says, he will tell you what to do. It's showing she trusts Boaz's judgment and his integrity. She's sending her daughter-in-law, she calls her daughter there and trusts that Boaz will do the right thing. Ruth just simply agrees to this plan. She puts it into action. She goes there, she moves quietly to not awaken him. We're not told a lot about what's going in her mind, but she went along with this. She must be at least somewhat interested. She must not be completely opposed to the idea of marrying this man. Maybe she just thinks this is a strange land with strange customs, but I like this guy, so I'll trust my mother-in-law and what she says to do. As for Boaz, he's taken some time to eat, to drink a little. This is often when bad decisions are made, but the text presents it more as that he has a contented peace. Not really that he's blackout drunk, but that he's peaceful and content in the situation. But he still had a little bit to drink. It's a secluded place. They're alone. Again, we're meant to feel the tension. What is going to happen here? Is this going to be a scene of, of purity or is this going to be a scene of sin? It's in many ways a replay of the Garden of Eden. This moment of temptation is coming. How is this story going to turn out? This is the climax. This whole story has been building to this point. So Ruth sneaks up. She uncovers Boaz's feet. And then at midnight, we're told that he was startled or surprised, maybe even terrified. It'd be like when you're sleeping, if sometimes the cover falls off your bed, you may all of a sudden shiver and, oh, you're awake, you jump awake. And imagine you woke up and somebody who you don't know or can't tell who it is, is sitting there. And he asked the natural question. He said, who are you? And this is what Ruth said, the rest of verse 9. She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Here, Ruth refers to herself as a maidservant, a house servant, rather than someone who's just a slave. That's what she called herself last chapter. But she changes how she describes herself because she's asking to be a part of Boaz's household. But this is still an incredibly vulnerable moment for her because Boaz could reject her or he could have taken advantage of her. No one else is here. 
So she uses some very powerful words. She says, spread the corner of your garment or spread your wings, spread your covering over me. It means take me under your wing. She's asking Boaz to marry her. And her reasoning is you are a family redeemer. You're someone who's meant to help our family. These words he, she uses of wings or garment, it refers to a symbol of protection, of provision. It's something we talked about last week. In fact, Boaz said the exact same thing to her. Back in chapter 2, Boaz says to her, the Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Here it is, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So this is an extraordinary moment. This is this poor basically one of his servants, a visitor, a woman in an age they didn't have many rights, a foreigner asking this wealthy Israelite man to marry her. And she's using Boaz's own words, kind of putting them back to him. She's putting the focus, the pressure on Boaz to act. She said, you told me that God would take care of me. Well, Boaz, you are the answer to God's prayer, challenging him to make a move. It's also, though, the language that God uses to describe his relationship with his people. In the book of Ezekiel, God says about his people Israel, about us, our relationship with him, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you, entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. That's why scripture verses about marriage are so powerful in scripture, because it's how God describes his relationship with us. And we're meant to see a picture of that here in the book of Ruth. In this instance, Ruth is focused on God, that he is with her in the risk and that he is in control. So if we're analyzing what's going on, maybe it's not the best plan, but God is gracious, and Boaz is incredibly gracious, reflecting God's goodness to Ruth. And he does this because he is a gracious redeemer, a gracious redeemer. Listen to what he says in verses 10 through 13. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So much to Ruth's relief, Boaz assures her that his feelings are mutual to hers. And he blesses her. He says that Ruth had shown even greater kindness to Naomi's family by seeking a husband in the family. That was the law, the custom of the land to marry within the family, and Ruth is doing that as well. She was full of family loyalty. She did not have to come back to Israel with Naomi. She did not have to marry within the family, but she did to honor God's law. She is following what God had said. And Boaz is very impressed that she did not seek younger or less mature men, that she wanted his maturity and protection. 
he must have reasoned there are men who are perhaps of a better status than him. There were probably men he thought that were better looking than he was or more wealthy, but she chose him. She chose family loyalty. With his words there, maybe Boaz reasoned that she wouldn't be interested in him, so that's why he didn't pursue her. Or perhaps he was just respecting her mourning, period. But now, as the Genesis says, Boaz is almost saying we can feel his excitement. He's like Adam who said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Ruth is a kindred soul to him. He admires her. He wants to share his life with her. And on the other hand, Boaz's tenderness and compassion make him a perfect match for Ruth. He's exactly the kind of man that she needs. Remember, she's basically a new believer. She may have known someone about Israel's God, but she very recently chose to follow him above all others. She made the decision when given the chance to go back, no, I'm going to stick with this God and be a part of this people. And so it's a reminder to us that we should communicate God's grace to those who are young and new in the faith. Except and if they're willfully disobedient, if they know what's right and they're doing the opposite thing, then we say, okay, well, you're doing the wrong thing there. But if someone's trying, stumbling, struggling along, we want to communicate God's grace because that says a lot about who God is to a person. We shouldn't expect perfection from someone just coming to the faith. One pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, put it this way, we cannot hide what we really believe God is like, how we live, how we respond to challenges, to crisis and trials, reveals what we really believe about God, what we really think deep down about him. And what this text shows us is Boaz believes that God is good and that God wants to provide for his people. And now that Ruth has experienced that goodness, she will believe that as well. Boaz then praises Ruth as a worthy woman, and he calms her fear. She doesn't have to be afraid. He's going to do it. As he says in 11, and now my daughter or, or miss young woman, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. He's rejoicing in who she is and in how God has made her. He calls her worthy, noble, virtuous. And this is a word that was used to describe Boaz in the last chapter. When Boaz first showed up on the scene in Ruth 2.1, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, I added the italics, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. So these are two worthy people coming together, being brought together through these circumstances. And notice what Boaz is doing here. He's putting Ruth on his level. He was known as a worthy man, but he's saying, you, Ruth, you are a worthy woman. He respects who she is and her commitment to her family and to the Lord. And it's not just him. He's saying the whole town knows this, who she is and her character. Then this same phrase, this worthy woman, it appears several other times in Scripture, notably in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 4 says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. And a very famous passage in scripture, Proverbs 31, begins this way, the same word, an excellent wife, a worthy woman, a virtuous woman, who can find she is far more precious than jewels. You might remember when we first started this series on Ruth, we talked about how 
In our English Bibles, Ruth shows up after the book of Judges, but in Hebrew Bibles, Ruth is after the book of Proverbs. So if you were reading through your Hebrew Bible, you would read Proverbs, you'd read Proverbs 31, you'd end with an excellent wife, and then all of a sudden, you have this story here, the story of Ruth. It's like the author's putting an example right there. You just read about what an excellent woman, who she is, this is an example. This is what she looks like. But in all this joy, this happy moment, there's a little bit of a problem. Boaz says, and now it is true I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. He knows he's a redeemer who can help, but there is one who is closer, a closer male relative. It's a very frustrating development because it leads us, well, what's going to happen now? We thought these two were perfect. He's a worthy man, she's a worthy woman, but now this issue is here. And let's take a moment to talk about what exactly is going on. He's talking about a kinsman, a guardian, a family redeemer. The book of Leviticus introduces this. It says, one of a man's brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. And all that meant redemption is this was a person who was responsible for a man's family if something happened to him. If he had to sell his land to get money for his family, well, a redeemer was one who could buy that land back. If some injustice was done to a man, a redeemer was one who sought justice for a man. And if a man died, a redeemer was one who was responsible to marry and take care of his widow. But Boaz points out there was another one who's a little bit closer with these words. I mean, maybe it was a cousin, maybe it was an uncle. There's someone closer than he is to Naomi. And this person had the first right of refusal to Ruth and to their family's land. And he would be responsible for what was known as leveret or brother-in-law marriage. We see this in Deuteronomy. If brothers dwell together, one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Instead, her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And so what that means is the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So that passage just says it's supposed to be brothers, but we see a principle here. The principle here is family names are not supposed to disappear. God is concerned to bless, to provide for all his people, all the families that know him. Boaz knows this is what God's wants. He's willing to take on that responsibility. He knows marrying Ruth or someone marrying her is the right thing to do, and it seems he wants to do it, but there's this problem. So he says in verse 13, remain tonight in the morning if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So lie down until the morning. He encourages Ruth to remain with him, to stay safe with him. Again, his integrity, caring for her. And he says, in the morning, I will take care of it. And see what he's doing here. He doesn't want to run ahead of God. This is a woman who says she wants to marry him, but he wants to respect purity until he's had the chance to check and make sure this other person doesn't want to marry her. He's taking responsibility for her family. He's not going to wait for this person to come and say something. He's going to bring it up, make it an issue right now. We see he's seeking Ruth's good. He's going to work quickly to see that she is provided for. He's not going to let this wait anymore. He's going to make sure that this woman is taken care of. 
And when he says this, don't get the idea that he doesn't like her or he's not really passionate about her. He wants to marry her. In that verse 13, he says the word redeem three times. It's like it's what his head is stuck on. He really likes this idea. But he says, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord wills, I will redeem you. It's like somebody who's always thinking about marriage, marriage, marriage. Well, he's thinking about redeem, redeem, redeem. He wants to be with this woman. But he wanted to do it the right way. And so he says, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. It was a very common way to give an oath in the Old Testament. He's saying, this is something I'm going to do. It's definitely going to happen. For example, one time the prophet Elijah is talking to his assistant, Elisha. Elijah said to him, please stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives, as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Saying, no matter what happens, I will not leave you. And so in our text, Boaz is saying, no matter what happens, I will redeem you if I can. One way or another, after tomorrow, Ruth would be taken care of. So in this, we see Boaz as a model of this pure love. Even when he's woken up in the middle of the night by a woman who's saying, please marry me now, he still thinks and acts biblically. Now, this type of human redemption, redeeming in marriage is different, but it's very closely related to what God does to us. And so this language appears throughout Scripture. For example, in the book of Exodus, there's a prayer to God. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed, purchased, saved. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. That's the major point of this book. Boaz is going to redeem Ruth and her family the same way that God redeems us. Like Boaz was for Ruth, God is our redeemer. He doesn't, though, buy us out of widowhood. He buys us out of slavery to sin. This is in the Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, Psalm 130 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities, all his sins. Or we can look at the words of the prophet Isaiah. God says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And the way God was able to do this is he had a promised Messiah, a Savior, a sacrifice who would pay for his people's sins. And those promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect Redeemer. And it's through him that we're able to return to God. Jesus viewed himself this way. He says in Matthew 20, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom, a redemption for many. Or the verse we read before the offering, Paul describes Jesus this way, in him we have redemption through his blood. What does that mean? It means the forgiveness of our trespasses and sins. This is according to the riches, the goodness of God's grace. Like Boaz did for Ruth, Jesus welcomes us. He protects us. He provides for us in a way well above what we could imagine or think could ever happen to us. Paul will use these words in Romans 8, 31, 32. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, well, then who can be against us? 
because he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's redemption there. That's what he did. He gave Jesus up for us. So how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is God's goodness, his grace, his love, his redemption that he shows toward us. And let me ask you, is that a love that you know? Is that a person that that you know, a joy that you know? Our sin, our rebellion against God separated us from him. It tore us away from him, put us in a broken, fallen, rejected state. Our only hope is not something we can do, but it's for a redeemer to come, to marry us, to redeem us, to save us. And that's what Jesus does. Because he lived perfectly for us and he died on our behalf, we can now be restored to God. If we turn from our sin and we believe in Jesus Christ, then we can have a relationship with him and a restored relationship with God. This is the kind of redemption that we're supposed to see even here in the book of Ruth. A broken, destitute woman is able to be redeemed by this man through pure love. That's what Jesus does for us. When we're broken, when we're following apart, he redeems us, he saves us. And I pray that if you don't know him, that you will ask me, you can reach out to me, talk to me if you're here or online, you can email me, and please have a conversation with me or someone else about how you can know Jesus Christ. If we know him, oh, then this redemption means that he is worthy of all praise. In the very last book of the Bible, in Revelation, we read about all these creatures around God's throne and all these elders, everyone who's there in heaven, and this is the song that they sing. They sang a new song to Jesus, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open the seals, for you were slain by your blood, you ransomed, you redeemed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Everyone who knows God knows God because of what Jesus did. That is that great, gracious Redeemer that not only we see here, but that we see in the rest of the Bible and in our own lives if we know Jesus Christ. Now, the closing verses of our text, they demonstrate Boaz's faithful and pure love, his faithful and pure love. Let me finish the chapter, reading verses 14 through 18. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring out the garment you are wearing, hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it fare, my daughter? And she told her all the man had done for her saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me for he said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So they waited until morning. I almost get the idea that I don't think either of them slept very well. I imagine they were excited about what was going to happen in the morning. Boaz, though, is still concerned for Ruth's reputation, so he sends her home before it's too bright and people could recognize who someone was. And he made sure that no one spoke of Ruth's presence there that night. After all, no one else was in the threshing floor where it happened. He needed to protect her integrity. He wasn't going to do anything to jeopardize their future together. 
He's not married to her yet, and he may never be. He has to check with this other person. But he still wants her reputation preserved for whoever her husband is. Again, Pastor Sinclair Ferguson says this way, the thing Boaz is most concerned about is not simply his own integrity, but preserving her integrity, protecting her in her time of need. In that sense, Boaz, our hero, is like the great hero. He is so Christ-like. And that type of Christ-like love, concern, pure love for others, that should govern every relationship that we have. It means that when we're interacting with someone else, we think about what's best for the other person first, rather than just thinking about what's good for us. The Apostle Paul would say it this way in Philippians 2. He'd say, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And that's a big challenge to us. When we're in a situation where we're in interacting with someone else, whose reputation do we think of? I know I often think of my reputation first. What, what will this conversation mean for me? But Boaz wasn't thinking that way. Paul says not to think that way. He says we should think of the other person's reputation first. So this would impact every relationship we have. We talked before, Ruth is not a guide to dating relationships, but if we are or we have a voice of influence with someone in that stage of life, there's a lot to learn here that when we're in that type of relationship, the goal is to pursue marriage. And so it means we treat whoever we're interacting with with respect because this date may or may not be your spouse. And so we shouldn't act like we are until we're married. Now, I'm not going to sit here and prescribe exactly what that looks like for every relationship. I think that would go beyond the bonds of Scripture. Talk specifically about what you can do or can't do. It's a wisdom area. But the point is to think about the other person more than you think about yourself. You may have wants and desires, but to think about the other person more. Now, if we're married, well, this is a challenge to us to obviously treat our spouse well, to be faithful to them in our words, behavior, and action. Pure love in romantic relationships or if we're interacting with someone else. Boaz isn't finished, though, showing love to Ruth. He puts six measures or scoops of grain in her garment, her shawl, her cloak. This is possibly twice as much as she gathered the first time she went out. Some people think this six measures may have been 60 pounds of grain. It's a very generous gift. And again, Boaz is going above and beyond with his kindness and compassion. This is a very ample supply. He's confirming his desire. He wants to marry Ruth. There could be another thought he has. Remember, she's on her way back into town, so maybe by carrying this grain, it will look like that she was just gathering grain first thing in the morning. So maybe it's another way to protect her reputation. Ruth gets home to where Naomi is. Naomi's very anxious to hear how things went. Perhaps she was up all night as well. And Ruth says something interesting. She says in verse 17, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. There's almost a sense that Ruth's a little confused about why Boaz would tell her this. But Naomi seems to understand what Boaz means. It could be a form of a bride price, but I, I think Boaz may be referring to something Naomi said. If you remember back in chapter 1, Naomi was bitter. She said, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter because I went away full 
and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Well, Naomi's life is not so empty anymore. Again, I really like the words from Pastor Ferguson. He says, Naomi went out. She left Bethlehem full and came back empty. But now Ruth has left the town empty and is coming back full. So Naomi replies in the very last verse, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. The man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Ruth had done all she could. The rest was up to Boaz. And I hate to leave our passage here off on this little cliffhanger, but it is where the section and where the chapter ends. She seems, Naomi seems to have done all she could to force the situation along, and so now she knows the time is right to wait and to trust Boaz, to trust God. All three characters have to wait, probably a little bit than they mourn. Boaz and Ruth seem eager to get married. Naomi's eager for her family to be taken care of, but they have to wait just a little bit, just a little longer for God's goodness to be seen. It reminds us that waiting and trusting in God, it may be very difficult, but his good purposes always come to pass in his timing and his way. Reminded me of Psalm 37, verses 3 through 5, which tells us to trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. Now, these verses or this passage, it's not a guarantee that God will give us everything we want, that he'll do everything the way we want it to, according to our timeline and when we want it to happen. But it is assurance for us that God will give us his best for his purposes. It may not look like what we wanted when we started out, but it will be what is best for us. And this is the pure love that we see in Boaz and Ruth, but we also see in God's purposes. In this situation, we have a couple. We have a couple who are meant for each other. They're both worthy individuals that God is bringing together. They don't know that. They're seeking what's best in the situation, but God still provides happiness. And when we live in purity, uh, pure love for one another, God brings us to where he wants us to be. Again, it might not be what we wanted, might not be when we wanted, but he will use his providence, his control to bring us where we need to be for his glory. And that's what our lives are really about, praising and honoring him because he alone is worthy.